We talked last time about um, about Tsar Balachai, about causing animal suffering, and about how the Torah, the Gemara at least assumes that this is actually a Torah concern. Um, what's interesting is, and we said this last time, is this that whole discussion that we had last time is purely in a vacuum, right? A vacuum of human concern, right? If I see an animal suffering, what am I to do, right? And we mentioned that, that, that the Gemara actually is actually remarkably lenient um, among certain things when it comes to human concern, uh, when it comes to animal suffering. The question then becomes, what happens when you actually do run into human concerns? And there's an actual real conflict between the animal's pain and suffering and what is a necessity for human beings. And in addition to that, we have to describe what it means by necessity and what is considered um, animal suffering. So let us just, just in the back of our heads, which we'll talk about a little later, let's just put it in the front right now. Um, we'll give a couple of examples that are going to come up, and as we're learning sources, or as we thought about last time, you'll tell me just to think about formulating an answer as we're going to go forward. So let's give a couple of examples that the sources are going to deal with. One that they won't. Let's deal with the first one. Uh, fur coats. Right? So a lot of the fur farms, they, you know, kill the, they rip the fur off the animals alive. Now, that may be a human concern, right? Because it's cold in Russia. Well, it is cold. And fur is warm, right? I guess. So would that make it okay? Would that be okay um, to make a fur coat, even if it means skinning the animal alive? Is that considered a human concern or not? And one, one damning critique one could offer, which I don't think has, but let's say you're a Hasidic Jew, like my brother, right? I have a Hasidic brother who lives in, in Beitar. Um, so he has a big fur hat that he wears in Shabbos, a spudic, right? There's a difference, just so you should know, between a strimal and a spudic. Okay, this one is a strimal, this one is a spudic. Okay, so what, what, practically, what does that mean? If you're Gare or Polish, you wear a spudic, and if you're every other Hasid, you wear a strimal, okay? I think there's 13 minutes that they take the, the fur off of to make a strimal, not a spudic. You can call my brother and ask him about the spudic. I don't know exactly. Expensive or more? I don't think no, it's more, actually cheaper. I, I don't know why. Well, I, I guess so. It's, it's higher. Yeah. Now, that actually serves no function except, to a certain degree, a, um, like a uniform. It's like a ref wearing a black and white shirt, right? I mean, the only reason why you wear it. Sociological. Right, sociological. Right, it's a sociological. Again, and it's a, again, there may be very important sociology. I'm not downplaying the role of sociology here. I'm just saying that that is the purpose of it. It is not, I've worn my brother's spider during his <laughs> wedding. It's shtick. But the point is, it is not warm. Okay, and especially when you're, you know, on August in Jerusalem, you, know, you don't need to can't worry about how warm you are, right? Um, or August in Bnei Brak, let's make it even worse, right? So, um, so as a result, is that considered human concern or not? Okay, hold that thought. How about this? I'll give two more examples. Uh, what if I wanted to cut my animal's ears for aesthetic purposes? I think it looks good. We have a, and we have a, a standard of beauty that says that when you have a dog you cut its tail, or you cut its ears, or you cut its tongue, we'll see, right? That is considered, and, and that's li- pretty much an aesthetic question, more than anything else. But it's, say, universal. So you know when you watch the dog show? Mm-hmm. Right? You ask yourself who, like, okay, so say there are stamps like that. And the other question, which is really an interesting one, is the following. Um, they, what they did, I don't know what they do today, but as of, say, 20 years ago, this was very common practice, I think I mentioned this last time, I'll just mention it again. Um, if you had older egg-laying hens, so um, 
So they would they have their laying season, and they don't lay eggs till after the winter. So what they would do is kind of like try to replicate the winter in order to get them to lay more often. So they would starve them for ten straight days in Israel. And he claims piercing they would starve them for like two days. But in Israel, the practice was ten days of starvation. The ones that die die, but they were older anyway, so they were going to die. And the ones that live um, will start laying eggs immediately afterwards. So you cut. But a new egg-laying hen that's born needs to wait five months to start laying eggs. So you're, you're cutting four and a half months off the cycle, right? Which makes the eggs cheaper. So is that enough of a concern? To um, So that actually, and interestingly enough, is addressed directly in a very contemporary uh, response written by Rabbi Shmuel Halevi Wozner, who's one of the great Haredi rabbis in Israel, in Bnei Brak, and he actually is surprisingly strict, as we'll see. He's very strict, but with a caveat, which we'll see. Okay? So, with that being said, let's talk about the following. Um, so, the Gemara here, let's start with the first source on the page, just so you can see a little bit. Um, you got this week's? This is this week's. This week's. We're up to this week's. Here we go. Okay. So, this week's it starts out with a Gemara in Masechara Vodazar. So, the Gemara Masechara Vodazar um, deals with the question. Um, which is the following. Um, the, um, the Gemara asks the following question, which actually is a, a very big question in general, which is that what is considered an imitation of Gentile practices, right? The Gemara is very concerned, especially in Pesachar Vodazara, of imitating Gentile practices, right? What we call Chukat Ha'akum, right? And, what, and, and the main source of this Gemara um, is this question about... Um, about what's considered chukarakum uh, is specifically dealing with the following. Um, so if you look in the top, it says like this, Yom Yom Hamita. So the Mishnah said previously that of the days where you're not allowed to do business with non-Jews is the day of the birth of the king and the day of the death of the king. Meaning the Gemara in the very, very, very beginning of Masechet of Odazara, the concern there is that you're not allowed to do business with idolaters close to their holidays because either the money is going to be used for the holiday or they're going to thank their God for having the money for the time for their holiday, right? So the Gemara, and the Mishnah adds in that list of things that you're not allowed to, um, days you're not allowed to do business, it says, Yom Haleidav Yom Hamita. So the day of the birth and the day of the, of the, the death. So the Gemara says, Mechlal the Rebbe Meir Savar. This implies that Rebbe Meir said, We'll see what it says. Alma lav Meaning like this. There's a machloka between Rabbi Meir and the Chacham. According to Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir says that the day of the anniversary of the death of the king is always considered an idolatrous day, whether they burnt the king's items or they didn't burn the king's items. Meaning one of the un- common practices in the ancient world was that when the king died, if the king was important enough, he would burn all of their possessions, and non-Jewish kings would kill the wives also, as you know, and the concubines, because this was designated only for the king and for no one else. Now again, we also had a similar thing, that a, a wife of a king could never marry anyone else, maybe another king, she married concubines, for sure not, 
could never get married. I'm going to kill them. But you know, this was this was, I mean, again. This is actually seen to some people as, a, as like a certain feminist victory. But I don't want to get into that now. But because that's really we, we will never finish if we get into that now. But um, but nonetheless. The Gemara seems to be saying that, according to Rabbi Meir, he actually doesn't see significance whether you burnt it or not, right? Because if he's saying it doesn't make a difference whether they burnt all the king's stuff or they didn't burn all the king's stuff. Either way, okay, it's considered an idolatrous holiday, meaning that the fact that they burnt the king's stuff is insignificant in and of itself, right? According to, right? So the Gemara says, Michlal, the Rabbanon right? which would seem to imply that the rabbis, and the rabbis in the Mishnah said the only days that are set aside as an idolatrous holiday is if they did burn the king's stuff, right? It says, This would seem to imply that the rabbis are of the opinion that burning the king's items, burning the king's articles, burning the things the king's used, is part of the idolatrous ritual, right? So that's why, according to the rabbis, you're only concerned of whether the king's Day of the end of the king's yurt site is considered a um, an idolatrous holiday. Is whether you burn the stuff or not, implying what that the burning in and of itself is part of the idolatrous ritual, right? But the Gemara says then, but v'hatanya, we have a brayta that says, sor malachim v'lo ori. So Gemara says, but hold on a second, we have a brayta that says when Jewish kings die, we also burn their stuff. So the Gemara's question is, hold on a second. If burning the king's items is considered idolatrous, how are we doing it? But how are Jews allowed to do that, right? Meaning, again, we said that according to a mayor, he doesn't make a distinction. He says, either way, they, 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 the yurt side of the king is a holiday for Avodazar. That's according to a mayor. And the rabbis say, no, it only makes a difference if he burns the stuff or not. So the implication would seem to be that burning is part of the idolatrous ritual, right? So if that's the case, how do we then burn the king's stuff? That seems to be that we are doing the idolatrous ritual, right? So the Gemara says, if this is an idolatrous practice, how do we burn it? And the Pasuk says, you're not allowed to follow Gentile idolatrous practices. Ella rather, so the Gemara says no. Everyone is of the opinion. You'll see where we come to this in a minute. But according to the Gemara says, look, both Rebbe Meir and the Rabbi say there is no significance in and of itself that you burnt the king's items. That in and of itself is not significant. What is significant is the following. According to Rabbi Meir, all idolaters turn the death, the anniversary of the death of the king into a holiday, whether they burn the stuff or not. And according to the rabbis, the fact that they burnt the king's stuff shows that this king is important enough to make his anniversary a holiday. Not, though, that the burning itself is the idolatrous ritual. And therefore, Jews would be allowed to burn the king's stuff because all it's showing is the importance of the king. And the only question there is, is according to Rabbi Meir, all idolaters turn all the anniversary of their king's deaths into holidays. And according to the rabbis, only if it's an important king they turn into holidays, how do you tell it's an important king if they burn his stuff after he died? Okay? Now, what does this have to do with animals? You'll see in a minute. Well, I can think of it as President's Day. Right, well, President's Day is not so idolatrous, unless 20% off on a flat screen TV <laughs> which one may very well argue but you don't understand what I'm saying right exactly right, exactly. 
So the Gemara then says, Gufa. So the Gemara says that you can burn the king's stuff and you don't have to worry about idolatry. Um, as the Pasuk says, um, you should die in peace with the burnings of your fathers. Okay. And just as you burn the king's items, you also burn the items of the head of the Jewish community. Now here's the key I want you to pay attention to. What items of the king did you burn? That's an interesting question. If the king dies, what items? What, what did you destroy of his? Remember that the whole point was is that it would be considered disrespectful for other people to use the king's things, right? Again, this is and again, I, I don't want to belabor a point which I'm sure has been belabored here endlessly, but if you remember the story in the Bible of of Absalom, David's son, right? So remember, he overthrew his father as the king, and what was the first thing he did? Slept with his concubines. And the reason was that obviously that is the greatest sign of his disrespect and his, and his dispossessing his father, right? And I mean, there's tons of other versions of this, but I'm just saying that that already, you know, that... Um, so it says, Umahim amalachim, What do they burn of the kings? Mitatan tashmishan. So the Gemara says, what do they do? They would burn their bed and the utensils that they used. And the story tells the Tagmara tells the story that Rabbi Gamliel, the elder, died. And he, so the Gemara says, Rabbi Gamliel died, and Unculus, the proselyte, the, the convert, burned 70 Syrian money, which was a certain amount of money. So the Gemara then said, So the Gemara says that what would they do? So Mark says, well, hold on a second. How can he be burning $70 worth $70? You said you only kill, you only burned the, his bed and the stuff that he used, right? So he said, no, the stuff that he used that was worth $70. Okay, here's the key point. Do you not destroy anything else? Vehatanya, we learned in a bright, Okrin malachim ve'en bo mishudar chaymoni. papa sus Sharachav Allah. Kamara says, we have a Braitha, and the Braitha says that you may mutilate the animal that the king rode upon. You may mutilate the animal that the king rode upon. Or you may mutilate the king's animal. So Kamara says, I thought the only things you do you, you, you destroy are his bed and his utensils. So the Gemara answers, no, what it's talking about is Amarav Papa, Papa says, Sus Sharachav Alav. Rather, it's talking about the horse, since the horse is something he sat upon and was part of his royal vestiges, so therefore, you mutilate the king's horse so that no one else may ever sit on it, right? Because remember, the king had his royal horse. Everyone would identify the king with that, right? That's a great story in the Purim story, right? That was the whole point of Mordechai riding on the horse. And therefore, the Gemara is of the opinion that, according to our Papa, you are allowed to um, to um, you are allowed, or you're actually obligated to mutilate the horse that the king rode upon. Out of respect for the king, you mutilate his horse so that no one can use it again. And you see the end. The Gemara has a whole question of how they did it. Okay. Now, what do you see from here, just to address our concerns? 
you are allowed to mutilate the animal and to torture them, and they tell you exactly how. You cut it, you wouldn't make it into a trefus, so you wouldn't make it so that it would be unkosher. So the Gemara says later on, you cut it from the ankle down, you would sever the tendon from the ankle down, so that it wouldn't be able to work properly, but... So what do you see from, from here? That it is permissible to torture an animal for a human concern, right? It is permissible to, to really harm this animal for a human concern. And what is defined here as a human concern? the honor of the king. Right? That's already considered a human concern. Now, how far can we extend this principle? How far would you extend this principle? I mean, you say it's not a king. I mean, it's difficult today because I don't think we, we think in that same way as far as honoring the king being the standard. Um, you know, that would be helpful to have an equivalent stand, you know, standard. So here, if you um, if you look here, um, if you look here, you turn the page just a little bit. Um, there is, uh, if you look here, Tosvot, a few pages later, it says Okrin So it asks the question: How are you allowed to do it? Isn't it Tsar Balichayim? So he says something interesting here. Vyesh Lomar, at the end of that Tosvot, it's, it's the third page, the third page. The actual third page? The actual third page, yeah. It says, Tosvot, Mesechad Avodazar, Adap Yud Aleph, Amun Aleph. I think that's the fourth page. Fourth page? Is it the fourth page? Yeah. It should be. Oh, sorry. That's the fourth page, yeah, sorry. So it says like this. So the end of it says, look in the third, the second, the last line, second to last line. It says, El Atzar Balechaim Echutar. How did they allow it as an Atzar Balechaim? It says, Vyesh Lomar, and we can say, Deshani Kavod HaMelech, that the honor of a king is different, Shehu Kavod L'Chol Yisrael, that the king's honor is the honor for all the people. It's for God, not for people. Or it's an honor for all the people. It says L'Chol Yisrael, meaning that you're honoring the people, you know, the, the king is the representative of all the people, right? The Ati Kavod Rabbim, here's the key point, and the honor of the community Dachit Tzar Balechayim pushes aside Tzar Balechayim. Now, I'm, I'll ask you just quickly, is there, is, is, so, again, and we'll see how other people understand this Gemara, but this is already a, 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 this interesting, this is how Tosfot views the principle involved here. And Tosfot's saying that the principle is that communal honor is enough this is the king's honor is the honor of the community, not just the honor of God, but the honor of the community, right? That the king is the representative of the community. So therefore, according to Tosfot, the honor of the community is significant enough that we are not concerned with the welfare of the sound. What about Kavod of Briot? Kavod of Briot, unfortunately, is invoked. Briot means humans. Probably means observant Jewish humans, but let's for argument's sake. <laughs> no, I'm serious, but let's, I mean, no. No, unfortunately, but say, kavod, there is, mean, kavod abriot does not extend to animals. The only question about animals is tsar balechayim, is animal suffering. And we'll, as we saw here already from the beginning, there are conflicting values that would push aside animal suffering. Now, again, I, I, I'm not, I just want to, you know, we'll, we'll work through some of the issues. I want to and, and see how these issues play themselves out because I'm not entirely convinced about all these things. Um, and you know, and, and when you have to make real life decisions, it becomes much more complicated. You know, like uh, you know, you go to a store. You know, you, like what decisions are you going to make there? What right? kind of dog food? What kind of eggs are you going to buy? What? What kind of eggs are you going to buy? 
kind of meat are you going to buy? Are you going to buy meat? I've noticed, interestingly enough, that there was a real shift amongst people I knew in the last 10 years. Whereas from, say, 2000 below, the issue of people who became vegetarians was generally, how can I eat an animal? It's inherently cruelty to tell an animal for me. Whereas the last 10 years, it has been much more about sustainability and farming practices. I don't know if people have had that same experience. Definitely. Yeah, that's been, right, whereas, yeah. Even just the shift to, like, organic food, you know, I can remember thinking, like, oh, I'm already buying kosher food, now I'm buying, like, kosher organic food, no. And then, you know, at some point, we just realized... Right. We felt the shift, and the people in our lives felt the shift. Right. I thought, and to the point where it's interesting is that I. Oh, and if those of you who want to come see Shlita, it will. It may happen sooner rather than later. I just have to. I have. I have a real in. With a former first graduate, also. There is. Let me just turn this off for a minute. Actually, I can keep this on. There is a wonderful young rabbi in this neighborhood, who is at a small Spartic shul. Elif Shalom is a shul on. 84th Street between oh, yeah. Broadway and West End. In the basement is a Spartac minion. There's a young rabbi in there named Avi Don Elkin. He's a year younger than me. He was in my brother's class at Frisch. Uh, that would be two, class of 97 or 96. I don't remember how old I am. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but he... And he I never Frisch is a yeshiva high school in... Uh, <laughs> Frisch is a yeshiva high school in northern Jersey. Oh, okay. Where my brother and sister went. I did not. So um, anyway, he was in my brother's class. And he went to NYU. He speaks German and French and English, Arabic, Hebrew very bright guy, and he became a rabbi, and he was in Israel, so he learned how to be a sofer, so he could be a scribe, and he learned a lot of things, and he also not only knows how to be a shofet, but he also knows nikor. Now, nikor is a very almost non-existent art. Most Jews, most butchers, don't use any of the hind portion, because you have to take out the sciatica nerve, it's a whole process, which very few people know how to do. So this Rabbi Elkin, went to Israel and spent a fortune and had four weeks, one of the old menachrim in Israel, spent four weeks straight teaching him how to do it. Wow. So he has a website, if you want to look it up, Bisra Kosher, I think it's called, B-I-S-R-A Kosher, and he does goat and lamb, and he shefts out of Palestinian slaughterhouses in Patterson two or three times a week. That's part of his job. So he does, um, so he told me, we're working on maybe being able to bring Hadars and Drisha students to come see the whole Operation. He's very cool with that, which is odd. So um, that's the the good news. And again, I I can't tell you about where the animals come from and how they were raised, but I do know that he, as opposed to a real factory setting, he's the one. You know, there is a face on who's doing this. If that if that means something to you, there is a face. You can go see his shul. He's a long beard. He's got six kids. You know, and, and whatever it teaches him all you. So um, so that's just so. If, and I'm working on a date. I spoke to him. We've been playing phone tag, so I'm working on a date. And I have a couple of other possibilities also for those of you who are interested. Um, okay. Can I, can I just ask you a question? Because yeah. for me, it will help. As I listen to you because you talk really, really quickly. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's okay. Um, it's probably genetic, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Chemical, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you decided to teach this class and you picked this topic and you prepared these texts, why did you... Like pick this topic. Why these texts? Like where? For me? Yeah. Oh, so let me tell you. I, I, I'll, I'll mention it. Just uh-huh. I, I think I mentioned it a little bit, but I'll, I'll say it just in greater detail. Um, when I was a young rabbinical student, mm-hmm. okay. So it used to be to be a rabbi used to mean predominantly that you knew what the inside of a cow looked like. Mm-hmm. I mean that was your rabbinic training. 
no, yeah, no homiletics in those, right? And I was like totally cool with that. Not only was I, but but I, I wasn't cool with that. And I was, I would mock the fact that older rabbis, you know, knew, you know, what a lung looked like, what a heart looked like. Who cares, right? And if I didn't think it was ridiculous, I thought it was bizarre. And also, I was uncomfortable. I'll give you an example. I, um, there's a, a, one of the rabbis in Yeshiva University is a rabbi named Rabbi Eliyahu Ben Chaim. He also has a, a Beit in Queens, and he has a shul in Great Neck. So I had to ask him a question once. I was not in his year. I didn't barely knew him, but I had to ask him a question. And I walked into his Beit Midrash. He had his own Beit Midrash, small, Sephardic Beit Midrash. And they were all learning Yeridea, so they had the books open, and they had a towel down, and there was a cow's lung on the table. And he kept blowing it up and pointing at all the people. You know, he had one finger in the, in the safer and one finger on the lung. And I said, I don't know what the hell is going on here. This, but i got to get the hell out of here, right? I, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is absurd, right? And not only that, I remembered once as students, one of the questions that comes up in Hulan and in Yoridea is that there are certain blemishes maybe in the brain of the animal that you would have to check. And I remember seeing some of his students this was really <coughs> gruesome for me. They had a garbage bag, and they kept smashing the garbage bag against the wall, and there was blood all over the place. And I believe it was a goat's head that they were trying to get up. And I was going to explain to the guy that after you're done with it, you're not going to be able to tell anything, because you know, you know, it's going to be a mush, whatever. But, but I said, I, whatever, okay, good for them. Have a, have, a, have, a, have a nice life, right? Didn't bother me, didn't bother me, didn't bother me at all. I started teaching in Hadar four years ago, and... And the students in Adar, like, if you bring, like, cinnamon toast crunch there, it, was, it would be as if you would, you know, give a four-year-old a crack pipe and light it. Okay, that's how... Because... Because corn syrup is, you know, I mean... Oh, yeah. well, so, at first I was like, you people out of your mind. Like, everything I ate, I would eat, I would, you know, I would lift my hand, but everything, they <laughs> were yelling at me about And I was like, I'm like, well, like, you people, like, leave me the hell alone. You know what I mean? Like, but then I said, okay, you know what? Whatever. Let me let me see if there's something there, right? So what was the first thing I picked up? It was the omnivores dilemma because that was like so students that have are politically active. Is that what you're saying? In the way that they had read the omnivores dilemma and were trying to the omnivores dilemma was like the sixth book of the Bible. Okay. You understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like literally like the sixth book of the Bible, and 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 so so I read it. And I was like, geez, this is not so simple. This is pretty this is pretty crazy. This business, right? And then, I was, it's really interesting, I was really interested in learning shlita then. Because I said, like, if I'm going to eat meat, I really should have some level of responsibility, like some level of the fact that, you know, like, this thing is a lot, this is really something real, right? Now, what was amazing to me, and this is the whole genesis of this, so I live in five towns, right? So five towns, have yeshivas and kolels, right? I mean, you can verify this, I'm not... I went to every yeshiva guy, every Talmud Chachem in the five towns. No one was interested. No one. They could care less. And I was like, I was banging my head against them. Like, who can? And amazingly, so that was like, so, and I had someone to teach. And amazingly, I was in Great Neck for Shabbos at a friend of mine's house who was a lawyer who never had yeshiva training. He knew how to read Hebrew though. And I mentioned in passing, you know, I would love to learn how to be a chauffeur. He said, oh, really? I bet I have five friends who would be interested also. 
So, that's what the hell's wrong with you. So you call me after Shabbos. All your shokhats, what's the difference? What? Right, exactly. Wait, I'll give you, I'll tell you even funnier, there's even funnier part of this. There's a, right, there's a, no, there's even, there's even a crazier part of it. So, he, he turns out, like, he calls me two days later, he goes, I have five guys signed up, no questions asked. Just bring, bring the rabbi who's teaching us over. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. So the rabbi calls me, I call the guy up, and he said, listen, I, I, he said, we need, this is, did, I, did I tell this whole story last time? Oh, it's okay. So he's like, he's like, did I tell the whole thing? Okay, so yeah, so you would. So he said, he said, I said, he said, we need first thing you learn as a shochei is how to sharpen a knife. I can go through a lot. Of, maybe the last class we we'll go through is how to sharpen a knife because the key of a, of, a, of a shlita is that the knife has to be completely sharp and completely free of nicks, and you have to really learn how to do it because it's a very, very exacting standard. So when you work with the shlita knives, you um, need these the stones, the polishing stones, and you need water, lots and lots of water. So he says to me. This whoever it was, the rabbi said, I need a place where there are, there's a lot of water. So one of the guys who's in the Shlita class, him and his father had this massive fruit wholesale business, really canned fruits and stuff. And when the economy tanked, this is very important because it's a very humorous part of the story, <laughs> they had a huge office, a huge office in Great Neck on top of a movie theater. I don't know if anyone knows Great Neck, but you know where the movie yeah. theater is on Middle Neck Road? Yeah. So on top of that, they, they made basically the whole floor. And the landlord said, listen, I have this empty office and no one's renting it. I'll give it to you half the rate if you sign a 20-year lease, whatever. He's like, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> so he had this back office that was never used. So we were like, okay, fine. So we would sit there on Thursday nights, sharpening our knives for, you know, for an hour or two hours, whatever it is. Now, and the other part is, is that the, that office shared space with a psychiatrist who had night hours. <laughs> this is a very important part. Okay, okay, this is a very important part of the story. So, so after a while, after a while, he said, the, the person who was teaching us said, okay, we need to actually do a shlita. Where are we going to do it? So the guy said, I can trust her. <laughs> the guy said, use the office, it's fine. Just, we'll block up the bottom of the door. So the first week he brings in a chicken, chefs the chicken, not such a big deal. Then a few weeks later, he's like, Look, you know, we only did one bird. You really need to get him more of a hang of this. So we brought in like 15 chickens, and to get, they put garbage bags all over the office. And the guy, the psychiatrist, people literally not to kill themselves next door. And they got it. It's literally like in, the, in this next room, okay? Okay. Yeah, you did not tell this last. Right. Yeah. Now, now. Now these, you can use it in the sermon. Right, right. Now, what's interesting... No, it's a really amazing story because these guys... These, the interesting thing was these guys predominantly had never really sat down to learn anything before. Some of them did not know enough Hebrew to be able to read the book, so he gave a Hebrew translation to them. And it became... These guys became a lot more observant as a result and a lot more learned as a result because they are... These guys are experts. I had to drop out midway just because I was busy. Whatever. These guys are... They're getting certified. Show them next week. That's un- what? These guys are... And now I'll tell you a funny story. One of the guys in the group... This is... A, I mean, the whole thing is, is so bizarre. So then eventually they said... Like, the guy said, listen, my father's going to... He works with us. And my father's going to fire me from the family business of the mm-hmm. two of us if we don't find somewhere else to do this. So the guy who's a lawyer started looking up and he figured out maybe legally that if you're going to kill chickens for your own use in certain villages in Great Neck, you can do it in your backyard. So now what they do is they set up tents in the backyard. They're doing it this Thursday night. They set up tents in the backyard, and they've been doing that. Now, what's amazing is that the opposition that the community and many of the community rabbis had to this, they thought I was out of my mind. Really? They said, why are you teaching this? Why are you doing this? This is what you... So that was number one. 
It was amazing. I would have never thought of that. Right, and these guys, and these guys are, 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 I mean, really, really experts. I'll give you one example. There's one guy who's a hedge fund manager. I think he made you know, 50 to $100 million last year, okay? And for some reason, he loves this. So he was teaching them how to chef quail. Quail is a little, uh, and is a little harder to do because it's more active. So the first time, it's very hard to hold it and be able to do the straight to right. So the rabbi said, you know, the guy's name is Bart. He goes, Bart, I'm sure you're not going to get it right the first time. So he goes, no, 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 I'm pretty good at this. He goes, I'm sure you're not going to get it right. He goes, I'm pretty sure I am, actually. So he does it. He looks at it. Perfect. He says, yeah, beginner's luck. He takes another one. Perfect. Another one. So he said, you know, Bart, you have a future in this. Maybe I can get you a job at Empire. Right? The problem is, he's like, well, you know, I kind of made $50 million. Let's say I don't really need to work in Empire. But anyway, but the point is, so, so these guys are amazing. And, and they made up, I can, I hope, hopefully they got made me one. But they made up like these, so that they don't get dirty. They made up these like, um, these like catering robes. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, the chef's robes. And this, it has two Schlitten knives like this. Oh. A chicken's head. It says GNSS, Great Neck Shoftham Society. Lahavdil ben Hatame Vatawar to be able to learn the difference between what's Tame and Tawar, and they right they have that. They have, then they also found out that um, Victorinix, which is a Swiss knife company, um, for some reason, some Meshuggah got them to do one run of Shlita knives. So they ordered them, and then they have a little question: There's a cross on it. What do they do with the cross? <laughs> so, but what this did was, and and this opened up a whole world to me that I never knew existed. The world of who and, and a friend of mine has a food co-op in Park Slope, but there was a million how you handle the animals, which animals you handle, how they come there, and you know what are the alternatives to factory farming, what are the all the things that go into this. And then all of a sudden, I started teaching it here. I started teaching this time at Hadar, and we're trying to see if I could become a shofet and train other people to come show them whatever it is. And that opened up a whole new world. It was a world that I, I, I really respected for the first time because I never even knew it existed, and I realized actually the importance of it. You know, and to a certain degree that. It's clear that the halakha, or no, let me say that. It's clear that one way of understanding the halakha is that you really need to be conscious of what you are eating and what you are doing. Can a woman be shokha? So we could talk about that. Clearly, from the din in the Gemara, yes. It's actually a very controversial discussion in the Shokhanara. Ashkenazi countries, the custom always was not, not in many places was not, and it was kind of fallen out of favor up until recently, meaning that there were, up until the last 20 years, Yemenite women who were still shefting up until maybe 15, 20 years ago. And probably the last generation that died out in Israel. But there were Yemenite women up until very, you, if you meet an older Yemenite, not even older, but a, a Yemenite Jew who were members either coming to America or the generation, the first generation came to Israel or living in Yemen, they will remember women children. It makes a lot of sense that they, there would have been women um, right, in, in, a, a, in those countries. Right, in a society where women were yeah. completely involved in food preparation, it yeah. makes total sense. Um, 100%, I agree with you. Um, there is not necessary. That's an issue that I had at Hadar, actually, because there are some women that wanted to learn, and I've been trying to figure out. I, I, we figured out that we were two generations away where we would need to train a group of people who know, and then those people who are willing to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We're at least one or two generations away, just like what happened with Gemara. You know that you know 35 years ago you could not find a woman to teach Gemara because they weren't adequately trained. You had to train, and then the next generation. You know. That's Maharat now. Right, exactly, right. But we're, I'm too, right, so we're already, you know, 30 yeah. year, 35 years later. So this is the genesis of that, if there is an so, interest in that. So what ultimately, like, you know, so what is your feeling, you know, what, 
where were you with respect to teaching this material? Because you talked, you were just like kind of getting to that point. Well, so now sense of I have been studying the laws of Shlita, and this summer I really wanted to start working on the. Um, not when you read Shlita Halachot, it's really like a DMV manual, and just as badly written as well. Okay, and it's boring to read as well. They're awful, and that's all it is. There is no theory. There is no, you know, there is no meta discussion, right? It's really all about what happens if there's a nick at the bottom of my knife, and I put a, put a piece of cork there, and you know, that that's what the Shlita manual is. You know, if I press this hard, is it good? Or if I press this hard, is it good? You know, if I hold the animal like this versus like this. One of the biggest questions for Shlita, just so you should know, one of the laws of Shlita that you're not allowed to do is press down. Okay, the, the, the sharpness of the blade is what has to do the thing. Right. So there's a halacha called hadrasa, which means pressing, which means that if you do it, if you chop down, that's not kosher. Okay, so for I say this with the chicken's neck, for argument's sake, if I cut it like that, that's no good. Okay, so you have to. It has to be the sharpness of the knife cutting it like this. Now, an interesting halacha, which is very seriously taken, is when you hold a knife. So usually you hold a knife like this, right? If you hold a shlita knife like that, the shlita is no good because we're nervous that that pressure is going to... So you have to learn to... It's, it's interesting. You have to learn to hold a knife like this. Um, you can't see it, but, um, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's what the Shlita laws are teaching you about. That's what the question is. But the meta question, that's what I'm working on now. That's what I'm teaching now. You know what I'm saying? I want to know what the meta question is so that you can then can maybe construct an ethics out of it. So as we're looking at this, this, these texts, you don't have a meta question in mind? I have some. I have some. But I have not, I'm, you know, in the process of working them out. Right. That's why I'm teaching them now. You know, I'm trying to work them out. See, right. Throw, throw, some, so throw it against the wall and see what sticks right. at this point, which I think is a valuable thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it changes how I listen to you teach the text because, because then I have a sense of kind of where you are, you know. Right. And general in life, you should know, if you know about me, is that nothing's ever finalized. You know, I mean, you've never, trust me, you can ask my, my wife to her chagrin. No, nothing's ever actually that worked out, you know what I mean? You know, and I can blame the chemical imbalance, you know, the, you know but the fact is, is you know, that's a, a, a always convenient excuse. Um, Why would you, I mean, it's good to be in process rather than calcified. Right, right, I hope so. So, and this, and this, and, and, and some of these texts are really important in that sense, like, and, and again, one, and, and I also show the problematics of it because. As we'll see in a little bit, you know, whether it's a really interesting question, which we'll deal with, whether there's an ethical problem does not necessarily in any way affect whether the stuff is kosher, right. which is a major issue, right. because it actually, I think, is in many ways one of the big rifts of what is going on here. It's a news item in the world right now. Right, but that is, an, I mean, one can make a claim that that is irrelevant, and I think that there is a valid. I'll give you an example. Just. Mm-hmm for argument's sake, which we'll, we'll, we'll see in a few minutes, hopefully. Say you owned a meat processing plant. Say you, whatever, whatever happened to Rabashkin's happened, okay? 8,000 pages worth, of, I don't have, okay. Let's say, for argument's sake, that the form, the, 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 um, the, the head of the processing plant was raping 12-year-old girls who were working there, who were working 20-hour days, okay? And let's say, for argument's sake, that the animals were treated in horrific fashion. Right, and that they were overworking their whatever. A, does that affect the kashrut of the food? Probably not, right? I mean, let's be, you know, 
let's even ask a further question, which I actually think is really where, it, and this is just to go back to your question, this is one of the major issues that I wanted to deal with. Let's say, for argument's sake, that somebody were to turn to the certifying agency, the OU or the Chafke, whoever it is, and say, how could you possibly put your stamp on this meat knowing what was going on in the factory? Right? So, probably a lot of us are sympathetic to that question, right? But I am also sympathetic to another question, to a counter-argument, where, say, I'm the OU, and I turn around and say, excuse me, that's not a question that I'm being asked. I was asked three things. Was the shechita done properly? Were the lungs inspected? And was the soaking and salting done properly? I was not asked anything else. Because I am not in the business of policing. The Iowa Attorney General, or the Iowa police are in the business of that, right? And that actually, I think, is, is also compelling. Meaning, that's not necessarily the job of the certifying agency. But that rift between what some consumers expect and what other consumers expect and what some certifications, you know, that is, is and my question is, is what can you construct to kind of bridge the two sets of values? Because it doesn't feel right. I'm not saying it doesn't feel right, but I do am sympathetic to the OU turning around saying, we are not hired as policemen here, Right. Right, but in any situation, if you were to walk into a plant and see something, even if you weren't the certifying agency... How do I know these workers are underage? How do I know that they're undocumented? How do you... Well, if they... If it... You know, what is it that the judge said about, you know, certain... Pornography? I understand, but right, right. But I'm saying, I don't know. This girl says she's... 18 and she's really 14. And I, what am I going to... And again, no, no, I'm not... Please don't assume that I'm underestimating the moral issue. What I am asking is, is, is what is fair to ask from a kosher agency? And if we want to attribute many higher values and higher standards, how is we, as consumers, how are we going to fill that gap? And maybe the answer would be that we shouldn't purchase things that come from these type of plants, right? Because they're impossible to police, right? So, for example, this Rabbi Elkin, so I know that he is 32 years old and he grew up in Fairlawn. Right. And I know that he checks the animals and checks the animals, whatever it is, right? So at least in that regard, and his meat is more expensive because it's a boutique item, right? But I may be paying a premium knowing that all of those problems are not here. But are we going to find the answers to those questions? Well, I'm going to want to do with it. We have so let's do. And we may go a few Take minutes. Back to where we yeah, let's go a few minutes over because I want to just deal with with one of those issues that comes up tonight, actually, which is really interesting. So just if you look in the second page or the third page, on uh, second page here, um, is another similar case here, um, which is actually a little bit different, and I just want you to see this because it's actually really important. So it's the next one is says Talmud Bavli Masechet Chulin Dav Zayin Amubet. Okay, so this is seven B. This is if you're learning Daf Yomi, it was maybe a week ago or a week and a half ago. Um, that's another interesting thing. If anyone wants to pick up on these, the Gemara that Daf Yomi is learning is Masechet Chulin. Chulin is the Gemara that deals with the food issues because that's the Gemara about non-sacred, non-korban, non-sacrificial food. So if you want to kind of pick up now, it's a good time to pick up. And another interesting thing is. And this I told some of my other students. The best svarim are the ones that they sell when they're learning dafyomi, right? So there is a book, if anyone wants to see, it's a little graphic for those of you who can't handle it, but just if you want it. It's a rabbi named Lach, L-A-C-H, who came out with a book called The Illustrator of the Illuminated Chulin. 
And what he did was, he literally cut open animals, took pictures, so you could see every case that the Gemara is talking about. It's an amazing work. And if you look on the internet, he does presentations all over the place, because this, this is his busy season, because they're learning cool in that, right? So this Rabbi Latch, or Lack, I don't know exactly how to spell it, uh, how to pronounce it, so it's in English and in Hebrew. He has the English ver- and Hebrew version of it. So if you really were like interested in just to see what any of these cases are talking about inside the Gemara, he does an amazing job, and it's available now, because they're learning Hulan now. So I would go to your local Judaica store and buy it now, because you may not be able to see it for seven years. You know, so that's just a, a, a bit of a plug. What's it called? The uh, I'll bring it in on, Monday, on next, I'll bring it in next time. So we'll, we, okay. Um, okay. So, the Gemara then tells the following story. And listen, and, and then tell me what you think we should do with it, because this story actually seems to be the exact opposite of the previous story. Gemara says like this, Shama Rebbe Nafak When Rabbi, that's Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, heard that Rav Pinchas Ben Yair was coming to him, Amar Lay, he said to him, Ritzoncha Saoretzli, Amar So the Gemara is picking up in the middle of this narrative. There's this narrative story, this tradition about these, these stories of, about this Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, who's this ascetic miracle worker, okay, one of these famous miracle workers in the Talmud, um, I think that, that there is a puppet show that they put on sometimes of Pinchas Ben Yair stories. I think I took my kids to it once. So he's one of these famous miracle workers in the Talmud. So Rabbi Yehuda Anasi heard that he was coming and he met, went out to greet him and he said to Pinchas Ben Yair, would you come eat with me in my house? Amar Lehin. And Pinchas Ben Yair said, sure. Tzavu panasho Rabbi. Rabbi's face brightened with joy. He says, so happy that Pinchas Ben Yair would agree to eat in his house. Pinchas Ben Yair responds to him, this is just interesting to think about, Amar lo, Pinchas Ben Yair said to him, Kamaduma shata ata shemoder hana me'isra'ani Yisrael kedoshen hain ve'yesh rotzeh ve'ein lo ve'yesh ain lo ve'ein rotzeh u'chtiv al t'lachem elechem ra'ayin ve'al t'ta'u l'matam atav ki k'mo sa'ar ben ha'shau k'enu o'chel v'shotah yomar l'cha so he says like this. Don't think that the reason why I'm agreeing to eat with you is because you're so holy and your food is so kosher and everyone else is this. No, Yisrael Kedoshim. Jews are holy people or observant people. So why is it that I agree to eat with you? Because sometimes people invite me over and they actually don't have enough food to subsist on, but they want to invite me over, right? Yeshua Tzavayimah. There are some people that want to have people over but just don't have the means to do it. So Pechaz Benyari says my general nitiyah, my general inclination is to turn down invitations. But since I know that you, Rabbi Yudanasi, have enough money, enough food to, 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 to I'll agree to come to your house. Don't think it's because you're from Kite. Don't think it's because of how pious you are. It has merely to do with the fact that I know that you're able to actually host me. I thought the, it was part of the issue with him you said was asceticism. He's we'll, an ascetic. We'll see that in a second. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, but, but he's willing to he's willing to eat a review on his ass. Hold that thought for a minute. He says, Mia hashta misarbina de bimilta mitzvah katarachna kiadrana atinu alaina legabach. Pichas Meir said, but I'm on my way to do a mitzvah. I'm on my way to redeem a captive. So I can't eat with you now, but on my return trip, I'll come back and I'll eat in your house. Gemara then says, Kiata, when he came back, Pinchas Benyar, Itramu al Bahahu Pitcha to Havukaiman Bay Kudnaita Havarta. When he came back, 
Reb Yudan, Pichas Ben Yair went into one of Reb Yudanasi's gates, and it Ram he saw Bahu Pitcha in that gate, Davukaiman Bey Kudnaita Chavarta. There were white donkeys, white mules at his gate. What's the problem with white mules? Apparently, they were considered exceptionally violent, as we'll see in a little bit. So Pinchas, violent. So Pinchas Ben Yair shows up, and he sees that Rabbi Yudanasi has these white mules on his property. Amar, he says, He says, the angel of death is in his house, and I'm going to eat there? Pinchas Ben Yair says, listen, it was nice that you invited me, but I'm not... <laughs> you got this, this these, these white mules I'm, I'm not interested in eating where the angel of death is he was so scared of these white mules right of the mules themselves not, not killing them the, I mean I don't want to get attacked by this mule you hear what I'm saying somebody has a, a foaming pit bull I'm not going there for dinner right yeah. with the assumption that they weren't possessed well, the assumption was that they're violent that we'll they're see, that they're were, violent. They, were they also in the house well, they're outside the house. We'll see in a minute. Because okay. we'll you don't know, it's, that's an important point that I, I, I'm going to get to. Shama Rebbe Nafak Lape. Rebbe heard that he didn't want to come in, and he came to him. And he said, Amar Li, Mazbaninu. So Rebbe said to me, or said to Benchaz Ben you know what? If you're so nervous about these white mules, I'll sell them to someone else. And then they won't be in my house, right? He said, what does that do? You're, so you aren't going to have the violent mules in your house, but you're going to cause someone else to have this violent thing in their house. Well, what, what good did I do? It's putting a stumbling block in front of someone because you're going to sell it to them, and then they're going to have to deal with the violence, right? So then Rebbe says, Okay, I'll set them free. Let me set the white mules free. So he says, no, all you did was make the world a more dangerous place, but they're running around all over the place. Now here's the key point. Akranalu. So he said, how about this? Why don't I hamstring them? Why don't I make them lame? So the mule can't kick you. What does Pinchas Benyar answer? Ika tsar balechayim. There is tsar balechayim. Now, what's the problem with this? Didn't we say in the case of the king that making the animal lame wasn't a problem, Right? And here, this is a real human concern. If I don't want these white mules to kick me and kill me, so that should seem to be a real human concern where I wouldn't care about the fact that I'm making them lame. Yeah, I'm making them lame. It's a wild mule that's going to kill me, right? Hold that thought for a minute. Then the Gemara says, Katlinu, maybe you should kill it. Says, Ikabal Tashvit. You're killing, you're ruining something for no reason. So then, okay, and then the Gemara gives a fantastic story and if you look at the end it just says Amar Yishu ben Levi Rabbi Yishu ben Levi says Lama Nikra Shema Yamayim why are they or Yamim why are they called Yamim Sheimatem Mutalat Alabriya because their fear their ema is on people meaning that they used to call white donkeys Yamim from the language that Gemara says of ema fear because when you see a white mule oh boy get the hell out of the way right and then the Gemara says this amazing statement. The Amar Rabchanina, the Rabchanina said, "Miyamai loshalani adam amakat preda levnavachaya." In my entire, all my days, I've never seen someone get a wound from a white mule and recover. I Meaning, if you get kicked by a white mule, it's over. So then the Gemara says, "V'kachazina dechayi," but I've seen people that survived. Ema v'chayi. 
No, I mean that the wound never got better. We see people whose wound got better. No, I'm talking about a white-legged mule. Not just white on the body, but a white-legged. If you have an all-white mule, you will never survive such a thing. Okay, now what's interesting about this Gemara, we'll see in a minute, is that it seems to be saying, though, let's go back to our issue, that here, you have Pinchas Ben Yair, saying, don't make the animal lame, it's Sar But wouldn't you assume that to take this violence out of the world, that is a compelling reason. If it's a compelling reason that the king's honor needs that we hamstring his animal, so why should this be any different? Does anybody have any thoughts on this? What is the... I mean, it seems to have a real contradiction between these two sources, right? On the one hand, you had the, the previous case in the Gemara which said, but look, you know, for the king's honor, we, we make the animal lame, and here, you have a violent animal, and we're not making it. Anyone? Well, the other one we said was about honor of the community as well, and in this case, it's only one person. Individual. Okay. Maybe. Okay, that's, yeah. Well, maybe you can make it, you can hurt the animal if you're actually in danger, but he's not actually in danger. He would only be in danger if he entered the gate. Right. So just don't enter the what else is what else is bizarre about the story? Just to think about it. What else is bizarre about? The how story? did they even get there? Or was part of how did these? Maybe, right. Rebuda Nasi lives in the same place as them, right? And he seems to be alive. <laughs> right. So he's like a right. So so. Donkey whisperer. Right. Right. Maybe the right. Okay. Yeah. A mule whisperer. Right. Yeah. It's a new TV show. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, with that in the back of our mind, I just want you to think about the following. Okay. So turn to the next source, and this we're going to have to go through in the Hebrew, but I want to go through it little by little so we can see this. Um, okay, little by little. And we're not going to say get through everything tonight, but I just want to get through a lot of it tonight. So the question was asked in Trumat Hadeshin. Trumat Hadeshin is a very important Ashkenazic work of halacha written in the late 1400s. It becomes very fundamental for what subsequent Ashkenazic halacha. It began a very fundamental work of halacha. So they ask him the following question. Im limrot So say I want to pull the plumage, pull the feathers out of a living duck or a living goose. Why? I need to use the feathers. I want to use the feathers. Whatever reason, right? So the question is like this. Is that similar to shearing a lamb? Which is clearly allowed, right? Oh, ihave tsar or is that animal cruelty? Because unlike shearing a lamb, it doesn't hurt the lamb as much as yanking the feathers out would hurt the duck or the goose. Maybe they should just do waxing like we do. Right, but the waxing also hurt. I mean, I, you know, not that I, I don't do it that often anymore. Anyway, so... And then he adds, look inside. Gam lachtoch lashon ha'ov Also to cut the tongue of a chicken or a bird so that it talks... I don't know what that means. I guess maybe the rooster would make a louder sound if they had a smaller tongue. And can I cut the ears, or trim the ears and the tail of a dog in order for aesthetic purposes? I want a better looking dog. So listen to what he says. Nirin hadvarim it seems to me, he says, that there is no prohibition because of Tsar Balechayim, im hu osa If he's doing it for his own needs and doing it for his own usage, there is no prohibition whatsoever. 
Well, how do you define your needs or usage? It's like, is it something that you have to do or is it something you Well, let's, let's, let's try to figure that out. Let's figure out based on the question how he would define it because we'll see that later on it's defined actually differently. But how based on this? Well, it would seem that aesthetics is considered your own usage, right? It would seem that, you know, I need a quill that's considered a usage, right? It would seem here that, in, and we'll see in a minute, but the only time you wouldn't be is if there is no purpose. Purely to torture for fun, right? I'm bored one day, I want to set a cat on fire. It's fun. You know, that would be, no, no, that would be problematic, but everything else wouldn't be considered problematic, right? Where is his answer based on? Look inside. This was the last source we did last time. What did Mar say there? That really strange Mishnah about the dog. I never saw a dog go to work in the Long Island Railroad, right? And what did it say? That all the animals were only created to serve human beings. So he's asserting here, he's asserting here that there is a value, and the value is, is essentially, we are at the top of the food chain, Everything else is beneath us. If we need those things beneath us, then they are ours to use. No questions asked. Well, not no questions asked, but few questions asked. Now, this becomes quoted lahalacha. If you look in the Ramah and Ezra, he actually quotes this explicitly, right? This is, and this becomes, in many ways, the defining characteristic of, of all the Tzar Balechaim questions. Come back to this Shemanadeshin. But let's see where else he goes with this because it's actually pretty interesting. He says like this. Viteda, and you should know. In the second chapter of Bavmatia, Daf Lamidvav, it's not Lamidvav, we saw this. Chashiv Prika Tsar Balechayim. It's actually an interesting point he makes, which I. Is it, he says, What was our source of Tsar Balechayim? That if your friend is carrying, you have a friend has a mule or a cow that's breaking under the burden, you have to do, Lifrok, you have to take the burden away, right? So he says, so what does that mean? It's an interesting reading. So the Gemara there is telling you that you have to unburden the animal because it's Tzar Balechayim. Now, and how did the animal feel the whole trip? Meaning, once, if I'm taking a, 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 a mule, a pack mule, and I'm putting a two, 500 pounds of, of wheat on its back from Minsk to Pinsk, so once I get to Pinsk, I have to take it off. And by the way, how was the trip? Well, the trip must have been painful also, right? But we never said that you're not allowed to use a pack mule in the first place. Why? Because you need to get it from Instapence, right? That's a human concern, right? So it's only once the human concern is over, I'm, sta- I'm stationary, that Tsar Balechayim kicks in. But not to get from point A to point B, right? Yeah. No, look what he says. The Imkain, if that's the case, if that's the case, how is it allowed masakaved, a heavy burden albanto on your animal, to take it from place to place? How you get tar Isn't that cruelty to animals? Right? If it hurts at the end, it kind of you know five steps beforehand must have not been too pleasant either, right? And if you want to say, okay, maybe you're right. So he said, just skip that line. Says, now this is another interesting thing. We also said in the chapter dealing with various insects in Masechet Shabbat. Rav Yossi said, 
says that the Gemara says in Masech Shabbat that if you wanted to castrate your rooster, how would you do it? You would cut off its crest, and by cutting off its crest, it would become castrated. What's the issue here? The issue is the following. The Torah prohibits you from castrating human beings and animals, okay? Independently. You're not allowed to castrate an animal, not because of pain or suffering. You can't even do it because there's an isser independently of castrating animals and human beings. Which actually is a problem for people. I have a friend who's a urologist who told me that effectively, if, if there were, and he's observant, he was, he's a rabbi also, and he, I don't know how he dealt with it in the end, but he said that if he wasn't going to do Sir, uh, vasectomies, 90% of his practice, right? Right. Uh, right? Vasectomy is considered castration. Well, yeah, you're cutting the, right? Well, well maybe, oh yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think, it's not the same, but I think it is considered halakhically the same. Yeah. So I believe, he, yeah, I don't know how he dealt with me, I'll call him on the way home. I have a long trip on the railroad. Anyway, so, but what does it say? It says you cut off the crest and it will automatically become castrated. Now, interestingly enough, what does the Gemara not say, but isn't that Sarbal Echayim? No, because I want to castrate animals. There's a compelling reason for me to castrate animals, right? You're not concerned with the suffering. Right? Yeah. It says, Shouldn't you say that you can't do it because it's Sarbal Echayim? You don't say that. So he says, look, and the Gemara there, if you look at it, I put it here also, that they ask Ben Zomer, are you allowed to castrate your animal? And he gives the answer that you're not allowed to castrate based on the Pasuk in Vayikra, never saying Tzara Balechayim. Remember, the way that they castrate animals in the factory forms, that when they castrate the pigs, there's no, there's no uh, anesthetic. Just go in with a knife. So the reason about castration is poor food? Or, yeah, or yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. But nothing to do with Tzara Balechayim. You're not allowed to get your pet. So I never. It would seem that that's not allowed to get your pet spade. If you look in um, in Evan Ezer Simon Hay, theoretically, if you were going to get it spade, I would buy the animal pre-spade. Yeah, that's a problem in Israel a lot. But the Sarbali Chai in Israel, then when you go and you get a pet, then they've already they've already got the the the, the thing inside so that you can identify the animal, the computerized chip, yeah. and then it's spade. Right, exactly. So, you, but the problem is, you, you really can't ask another Jew to do it either. There's a whole. Lot. I don't know how. Again, I, I haven't lived in Israel. I mean, ever. So, really. So, but I mean, like you know, I was a student there, but I never really actually lived there. Um, but generally, yeah, if you're going to buy a pet, it should be pre-spayed before you buy it. You can't actually buy them. You can only get once, which is, it's really nice. You can only get animals who need a home. Right. Okay. But I'm saying, even if you, however, you're gonna. Yeah. I'm not a big pets person at all. Like I don't get the whole thing at all. Not. I just don't. Like I just said in the other class earlier today. Like, you know, people have their dogs lick their face, and they say, well, their mouth is cleaner than yours. Yeah. Right. But I don't have my kids lick my face. It's not like anything licking my face. So even as a clean mouth, it's still gross. But. Oh, I have a great story about a gay guy in LA and a coffee bar and his dog. Oh. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> for another time. Okay. For another time. But anyway. So with right. Okay. Another time. But anyway. So look what he says here, right? So he says, he says, look, so he says, so and so therefore his argument here is, his argument here is the following, that, Wait, where are we we're in the middle here, so he's in the middle, he says, he says that basically, so the argument is that all of these things are considered human concerns, I want to castrate an animal so that I don't have, they're not going to reproduce, I have all these various things, so the Gemara says, never does Sar Chaim come up because these are all human needs, human concerns, they're all human needs, human concerns, you are, these are not even part of the discussion of Sarbali Chaim. 
But it goes against the Torah. It goes against the Torah only if you're doing it for no reason, right? At the uh-huh. end, right? Okay. Then he says something interesting. This is what I wanted to point out. He says, The Al Tashiveni, Mehad Amrin and Parakam Lechulin, Mehad Rapinchas Ben Yair, Akrin Alhu Ikatsar Valichayim. He says, he says, what about the case of Pinchas Ben Yair, right? That we just learned. He says, don't bring up Pinchas Ben Yair, he says. Don't bring up Pinchas Ben Yair. Why not? He says, Dahatam, that case, Lot Kavit Latash Misholi Afoto, Yaziku. He said, what was the reason why he would want to make that animal lame? So that it doesn't damage him, doesn't hurt him, right? Vahi Yaziku Loshrikukukach. He says, and obviously, this was not really a common type of thing that these animal, that a that a white mule was going to hurt you. Why? He says like this. Let me just. He says there is in the Gemara Masechet Bava Kama. So the, it says in Devarim, I think, Lo Tasim Damim You should not have blood in your house. What does that mean? So the Gemara says in Masechet Bava Kama, you shouldn't have a violent animal in your house. Okay. This is a, interestingly enough a total prohibition of having a violent animal in your house. Okay, because it's no good will come of this, right? So think about the following sense. So if really in the case of Pinchas Ben Yair, do you really think that Rabbi Yudanasi, the great Rabbi Yudanasi, had a stable of violent animals in his house? Of course not. So what's Pinchas Ben Yair? Pinchas Yair says, Mirov Chasiduso, Chasiduto, have a copy. He's extra. Remember, we said this is a super holy man. He gets nervous about a lot of things. You know, he is nervous about that. Whatever. Again, it's a little over effusive. Also, the Malchamavis is in your house, right? You know, the angel of death. It's a little bit much, anyway. So he says, Pinchas Meir is in no way an example, because theoretically, if it was really going to kill him or really going to hurt him, so you would, you would answer it because I mean, you know, if you're allowed to, to schlep. You know, wheat from mince to bins. Obviously, an animal is about to, you know, knock my chest open. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to make sure he doesn't do that. And the point is, Pinchas Benyar is a case of these exceptional, ascetic, holy working miracle men that have other concerns, but clearly are not legal, strictly defined concerns. And therefore, he's going to, what he does, interestingly, is he writes Pinchas Benyar out of the question. It makes sense, of course, I mean, to say that Rabbi Yudanasi wouldn't, you know, you know, it wasn't like Michael Vick, right? You know what I mean? Like, but, so the point is, you know, that he, right? So, but, so that's the interesting thing um, here. So, and then he says, when we told Halin Rayot, based on these proofs, Havanira, it seems to me, Ksat, a little bit, Deleka Isr Gavna, that you're not, that there is no Isr, there is no prohibition per se. So let's stop right now, because there's another important secondary point that he makes. He says to cut the animal's tongue and to pull its plumage out and to cut its ears and to cut its tail. Strictly speaking, since there's a human need, even an aesthetic need, and again, this is obviously this is a society that has, I guess, a stronger sense of this is beauty. This that's considered a compelling enough need to allow you to do it. Okay, and that's. However, he says, this is what he says. Ella, however, shahaolim nisarim nimnaim. But nevertheless, the world, and we're talking about the world here of observant Jewish world, Nizharim are careful v'nimnaim and withhold from this. So Truman Adeshin says, even though it's allowed, people don't do it. Why not? 
and perhaps hatam linhog So he's saying two things. One I think resonates more than the other. He says that even though it's allowed, people still don't want to be cruel, right? And then he says because, and then he says second point is because they don't want to get punished. So if forget about the punishment for a minute here I mean, don't forget about it because it's important but let's just he is making a very important distinction now I will say that growing up in um, not even growing up forget about that being trained as a modern orthodox rabbi so once upon a time I wouldn't even understand this argument because I would have thought well if the halakha defines the parameters as being this so then what moral qualm could you possibly have right if this is the halakha I don't really need to ask another question so what's interesting here is he is actually asking that question and he's saying that, look, you may be allowed to do it, but that does not mean it's not cruel. And it mu- does not mean that ultimately God will not judge you based on your cruelty, which was done under the guise of permissibility. Under the guise of halacha, right? That's wild. What's his case? Proof. Ashkechan, as we saw, Perak HaPolim, Ba'metziah, Gabe Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Bahu Egla, Detlat, Loresha, Bekanfei, De Rabbi Amar, Zil, what happened? Remember the case last week that the little, sh- the little calf was scared he was going to die and he hid under Rabbi Yudanasi's cloak. And Rabbi Yudanasi said, go, this what, what do you think? that's what you were created for. What happens? Cows get killed. And the Gemara said he was punished as a result. So what's going on there? So the point is, is there is a notion that God will judge you disfavorably because of the cruelty that you created against an animal or you did against an animal that may have been perfectly, halakhically justified. Right? He says, nevertheless, You're allowed to kill an animal to eat it. Nevertheless, she was punished. So that's his answer. Now, that is actually a great tshuva. Lots Lots and lots to think about, right? Yeah, that you used yeah. for other... This, now, now, so what's interesting about that last point you mean, right? The last point you said The point, about? yeah, the point that even though there's a halakha that is, makes it permissible, that it doesn't mean you're not going to be judged. So let me read you the following, because thank God they have a whole set of which I never put in sheet. <laughs> like an idiot. I apologize. Um, so if you read the Shulchan Aruch here, and I'll just... So if you want to know the citation, just so I can, it's in Evan Ha'ezer, I think Simon Hay, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay, so the Ramah writes the following. Okay, the Ramah writes the following. Kol davar. This is the Ramah, right? So I'll put it on the board. It's hey. Here, one second. It's here. Let me just write. It's okay. So it's an Evan Ezer and Shulchan Siman Hey. So if you dollar in the Ramah, okay. So if you want just the citation, and I'll read you what he says. So you can hear it. He says like this. 
Kol davar hatzarich lurfuah, anything that's needed for healing, medicine, o l'shar dvarim, or anything else that you use necessary, leit beimishum itzer tzar balechayim. There is no prohibition of tzar balechayim. Vilachayim, therefore, and therefore he says you are allowed to pull the plumage out of a living duck or living goose and there's no issue of Tzar Balei which and he quotes literally quotes this directly right and nevertheless because it's cruel so literally, both the conclusion and the addendum are quoted la And interesting, if you look in the, the Bir Hagra of the Vilna Gaon, he cites the story of Rabbi Yudanasi as the source for that. Which is actually exactly what the Truman Adeshin does, but he cites it as the source. Right? If you look in the Bir Hagra, he says that, um, etc. Okay? Now, this is an, so now you have a... Uh, well, I have really a balancing all of a sudden, right? Because, and you have also the possibility that, again, now, it's interesting, what would we then demand of both of ourselves and of others, though? Right, that's really the interesting question here. That's complicated, right? Meaning, for myself, maybe I should say, you know, I'll tell you where it becomes most acute crisis is that I am a rabbi and people will actually ask me questions about this. Good luck here, right? So when people ask you these questions, right? Right, yeah, right. Good luck. Good luck answering these questions here, which are okay. So on the one hand, for myself, I could kind of make that own distinction. Like you know, I may be allowed to do this, but I shouldn't. But what do you do for other people? Especially by the way, if you're not, if you're not necessarily as concerned about getting like gallstones, like Rabbi Yonasi got, right? You're not necessarily so sold on that ontology, right? So then, what do you do? Um, Can you offer the offer just what you're saying, the truth? Well, I have offered that in another context. I had a student who uh, asked me another question, and she was asking me about, she was in college, about going to class on one of the holidays. She said, am I allowed to or not? And my answer was, I'm not in love with the idea. Which meant, um, I, don't, I can hear if you want to go, I can hear if you don't want to go, I don't think it's a good idea, but it's your decision to make. Okay, that's probably how I would answer this question. Some people will say, though, of course, that's avoiding the question. You know, some people, for everyone who appreciates... I mean, I would maybe answer it, I don't know what you would say, but like in the, in the case of, let's say, health, you know, what the Ramah is saying, mm-hmm. I mean, there, and I don't know enough about it, but there there must be um, like some remedies that are made more, eth- I'm sure that'll start coming up more and more, mm-hmm. made more ethically than other well, that right. and like you can kind of keep... Staying aware of it, knowing that your health may be more important. I, I, I'll tell you what, where I realized that is it, really interesting. So when I started teaching this class, let's go back to I so and now I, I read, you know, I read the Honey Words Lemon, then I read Jonathan Safran Fowers Eating Animals, which is a disaster. <laughs> so, did anyone read it? Yeah, it's I, I stupidity, like right? It's, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I hope he's not listening. Anyway, anyway but, uh, yeah, but it was. I thought it was really stupid. I thought I actually. That I saw him on um, the Colbert Report. I was in the audience, and <laughs> I don't know if anyone saw the Colbert Report that night. And at the end, Stephen Colbert puts 
a piece of strip of bacon as a bookmark. That is actually really funny. So anyway, so yeah, so so his book was not so great. And then I realized that I had to go back, really go back to the argument. So I started reading Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, which is like the classic text on it. And the revised edition, I'll tell you one edition. The revised edition is from 1990. That was the last time it was revised. So what's interesting is he has these very long and parenthetically extremely boring chapters on both animal experimentation and factory farming. What's interesting is in the 20, uh, 21 years since it was revised, I would assume that the, the, the animal experimentation practices are much more ethical and the factory farming is far worse. Okay, so there he was taking for granted that most, that a lot of animals were factory farmed, whereas in America it's now almost all animals, right? As a, on the other hand, I, the cosmetic companies are doing a lot less with the spraying the eyes of the rabbits than they used to. Yeah. So it's interesting to note that you know this is something you actually have to constantly monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, as far, but to answer, you know, to, to, to use this Truman Adeshen as a as a source, again, it's an interesting question of how. There's also a difference. There's also a difference between using it when it comes to something where like the hell has this, but there's a higher, you know, there's a higher standard, you know, where you use, you know, ethical, whatever, and then, you know, a kid who comes to you and says, is it okay for me to go to class? Well, yeah, I don't have the answer, but philosophically probably the answer is no. No, the answer is not, no, that's what my point was. So the answer, is, the answer was not necessarily no. I mean, you can go and listen, I'll take notes. I'm not, yeah, I don't like it. So, so you know, but I'm just saying, like, you know, it's very, you know, what are the circumstances? Like, well, I, like, you know, are you talking about you know, how you advise people in general, like how you talk about things, you know, like is it, where are your, you know, when it comes to, it's like, you know, I would think about it in terms of like morning practices. Well, philosophically you're supposed to do this, but when somebody's morning, like what's the value, you know, right? Like what's, what takes precedence? You know, where somebody is in their morning and what they need because they've just, you know, suffered through this, you know, this tragic loss or, you know, well, I'll have to do this. Right, right, no, no, 100%. This seems to be the same thing, though, in terms of making decisions about... Right, although, you know, it's an interesting question of, like, what, what, I would, what would be my own personal practices versus what would be, you know, what I would either demand or even expect of other people, or when I go to other people's houses, right? This is already a ready case, you know, like, right. if you're going to... You know, it, it's hard enough... Somebody just wrote an article, I think, in JTA, about how, like, it's not worth having any guests over on shops anymore. Because by the time you're done with everyone's eating requirements, you literally cannot make anything. Yeah. Right? If you think about it, right? It's just absolutely impossible. Now, the question would be, what do I demand of others? When, right. Say you invite me over for Shabbos. So, you know, am I going to ask, by the way, where'd you get the meat from? Where'd you get the eggs from? You know, where'd you get the... You know what I mean? It's an interesting question. You know what I mean? And the, one, a couple of other things I just want to get through tonight, though. And really, one more thing. Well, two more things. I mean, I can get through all of them. I just want to, and again, there's a lot more to talk about. Just the, 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 if you turn to the next page, so there's a lot of interesting things there. There's two points I just want to make, just so we could, um, and I'll probably have to make them much briefer than I wanted to. So the question in the bottom of the page says, "Shelo v'tshuvot shevet alevi chelik bet shimon zayin." You see that? So that is a, a rabbi. He's alive today. Very, he's pretty old. He's in his 90s. Named Shmuel Halevi Wozner. He's one of the great, uh, one of the great, you know, post him alive today. One of the for like the more Hasidic Haredi community in Israel, he is the biggest voice that there is. Um, so they asked him about this practicing, and I just you know you could the practice is where they would starve the animals for these ten days, in order to allow, um, in order to allow, uh, the the egg produced production to, to to speed up on its natural clock. 
Now, if you look here just very quickly. That's scientifically proven? It works, yeah. It doesn't work with people. It doesn't work with works with acts. As a matter of fact, Peter Singer has it in his book. Peter Singer has this as a practice in his book. Um, he has an interesting distinction that he makes. If you look in the third paragraph, he says, Hinei chavtaf herech latzia inyan sarbalechayim. Okay. Yireh, he says, Hashela. Yireh lefi aniyadati he said there are three principles in Tsar Balechayim. And this is really interesting. Tsar Katan, Tsar Gadol, Varzarit Lev. He says three ideas a little bit of pain, a lot of pain, and pure cruelty. And what he does here, and again, we, we don't, if we could have, we, he, I mean, we, have, we don't have time to go through everything, so maybe if you want, we can do this next time, a little bit in a greater depth. But he does create a category where even if there is a human need, pure cruelty is still forbidden. Okay? So he actually is one of the only major rabbis that comes out against the practice Meaning, yes, will the eggs be cheaper? Yes, but it's still prohibited. Why? Because starving an animal is pure cruelty. He says, starving anything for 10 straight days is pure cruelty. Even if there's a compelling financial reason, he says it's not allowed. And therefore, at the end of the Shuvah, he comes out, and he has a really interesting thing, because you know when we generally, instinctively hear this type of rabbinic language, we're repelled by it. But he says, where would a Jew even learn how to do this? Clearly, the only way that they learn this is from imitating the Goyim, because what Jew could possibly be that cruel? Now, instinctively, we, instinctively, we like, kind of like are repelled by this language, but I actually think there's something interesting about it. Because he's making even a really, really interesting claim that the cruelty of the modern farm is nothing the Jews could ever possibly have thought of or would want to do. Who would possibly think of such practices? Now, it may be the Jews did think of such practices, but what he's making a claim is, is that this is not a Jewish thing to do. Yeah, right. Right? Jews shouldn't. How would a Jew possibly do this? Right? It's like the hunting case we talked about last time. Yeah, it's not that hunting is prohibited, but what kind of Jew hunts? Right? Which is actually the final answer that they give in the Chuba. What kind of Jew hunts? Asa hunts. Well, that's who hunts. Jews don't hunt, right? And it's actually making a, a really interesting, expansive claim, right? That why would a Jew be involved in something like this? Now, what's interesting here, and again, this is the tragic postscript. So he comes out and he thinks that it is a Torah prohibition. Now, it is still absolutely the practice even amongst the most Haredi farmers in Israel to continue to do this to this day. Why is that? And this really is where the rub is. So there's a guy who teaches here named Amit Varyahu. His wife also, Yedida Koren, teaches here. So Amit's father uh, has a PhD in animal husbandry and he really deals with chickens. He lives in Israel. And he was trying to agitate to get the major rabbinic figures in Israel to prohibit this practice. And he went to Rav Wozner and said, you know, what, what are we going to do? Rav Wozner said basically, all right, and a lot of the rabbis said, listen, what can I tell you? It is cruel, it is a violation of the Torah, it does not affect the kashrut of the eggs at all. And here is where you have the naked marketplace, even of the quote-unquote most observant consumer saying that even if something is done in violation of the Torah principle, nevertheless, since my limited question of is this thing kosher is answered the way I wanted to, I am not concerned with the meta issue at all. That's the tragic postscript to this. Right? Is that to a certain degree it didn't matter at all. Or it doesn't matter at all. 
which really makes it, which really makes us all the same because Jewish, non-Jewish, like we all make the same decisions about whether we buy organic eggs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The two and a half dollar difference uh-huh. is the, right. Now, unless right, which which would then mean that actually that the only avenue would be to. to for us to directly lobby the government. You know what I'm saying? And it was an interesting thing because now we want to say that basically we have to circumvent the rabbinic because really, you know, that, that won't get anywhere. And, and, and maybe shouldn't get anywhere, you know? One last point I want to make and then I'll call on you because I, I, we do have to just wrap it up. The last point is just one and you can read it on your own or maybe if you want I'll be around we can, or we can talk about it another time if you want. A very famous question that was asked of Yaakov Emden who was this great German rabbi in the 1700s. One of the most wild rabbinic figures that ever existed. Why is that? He was wealthy and he had his own printing press in the 1700s. Which means he could do and say whatever he wanted to, right? And he did. Um, he also was one of the only of the great rabbinic figures that wrote an autobiography, a very honest autobiography, a frank autobiography. Uh, and he wrote extensively on, on everything. Because, you know, he didn't, I don't think he had a rabbinic position either. He just had time, money, and a printing press. Which is a very dangerous combination. And didn't give a damn. So, you know, <laughs> so he is most famous, you know, What's his... Rav Yaakov Emden. Yeah, E-M-D-E-M. E-M-D-E-M. Yeah. Um, his most, so his two of his most famous uh, shuvot, one is, uh, is that he believed in polygamy, even in the 1700s in Germany. Oh, they're both for a purpose. Right, was that right? Well, that's right. He also was an extreme opponent of the, of the prohibition of kidney on Pesach, of legumes on Pesach, for Ashkenazim. He was very, if you read his tshuva, very vitriolic tshuva <laughs> against that. A very famous figure. He's got a million wild. It's like a, he's, you know, it's a wild. And here he has an interesting case. Just and I'll tell you what it is, and we can talk about the circumstances of it later. Question. I'll give you the, the exact question as it was posed to me. You live in Washington Heights. So what do you live with? So I, I lived in Washington Heights when my child, when Hannah was born. So it was me, Shani, Hannah, twenty-seven mice. I live in anywhere in New York. I'm talking about anywhere in New York. Now. How do I get rid of those mice? Well, you get a mouse trap. Really? Isn't a glue trap Tsar Balachayim? Just sit there and flops the boys? So his question actually is from a different perspective. Well, it's the same question. Are you required, or is there a prohibition of Tsar Balachayim on vermin, mice, insects, etc.? So he actually says there is no prohibition. Why? Interesting case that he has. So when's, what's the case that we learn in the Torah of Tsar Balechaim is the case of a pack mule or a pack animal, right? Meaning what? That the Torah is only concerned with the suffering of animals that do work. Animals that serve a purpose. And other animals we are not concerned with their suffering. So therefore, and he says maybe a cat or a dog that serves some function in human society will be included in that, but generally he says mice, from, those are excluded from the Torah's consideration, therefore if I wanted to know how am I supposed to catch my mice, somebody actually asked me this, halacha l'masa, how should I catch the mice, should I have to buy the snap traps or should I have to buy the, you know, the, 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 you know? and I said if you want to take Rav Yaakov Emden to his natural conclusion, which most people do, he says Tzar Balechaim does not apply, which actually is very problematic in the sense that, you know, what about these experiments done on mice? Maybe we don't care about Tsar Balachan at all. Is it better to just get a cat? Because that way, at least the food chain is going to be Well, the, well the, there's the side problems, right? You know all the cats in Jerusalem were there because yeah, they had mice. Yeah, yeah. So now, right, so you probably place one problem with another one, right? They're not a problem. All the cats? They're quiet. 
quiet. Not so quiet. <laughs> anyway, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>